Well, we're, everybody's preparing to go to New Orleans. That's where the big uh, American Clean Power Conference is going to be, and it is going to be huge. Everybody I talk to in the wind industry is going. So it's going to be, I think the attendance is going to be fantastic. I'm excited for it. You guys won't have any fun though, because you'll miss me. That's right. We'll think of you while we're at the uh, great New Orleans restaurant. Hanging on to Bur- Bourbon Street. <laughs> and um, music, the music, that's a big reason why I want to. We go there. We can FaceTime it to you. How about that? Please do. Uh, so when this episode released uh, next week, which is be Tuesday, ACP will just be starting. And uh, FYI, there's going to be some exciting stuff happening on the show floor from what I can hear already. So stay tuned next week. Uh, this week, we talk about a, a number of, of topics from all around the world. Uh, in China, they're building a wind farm at about 14,000 feet. Uh, 4,500 meters. And Rosemary talks us through, like, what does that mean to build a wind turbine farm that high? Do you have to change the blades, air densities less? It's pretty complicated, actually. So there's some good input there from Rosemary. And then we move over to AES in the United States, uh, and they are really investing in renewables. They're offloading their coal assets and uh, really trying to, to move into the renewable energy economy, which is good to hear. Uh, we talked about Nordex. Their first quarter report came out. Didn't look so hot, but the future is going to be brighter. And then GE and NREL in the States are looking at something new, low-level jet streams and what that means off the Atlantic coast. And then we're going to talk about long-duration energy storage, um, or at least eight hours uh, duration energy storage. There was a battery that won um, an auction uh, in Australia, and we talk about how energy storage technology is going in general. And then we're going to touch in with uh, Aaron Barr here from Wood McKenzie, and he's going to give us a little bit of a, or he's not going to be on the show, I'll, I'll be clear on that. Uh, but we're going to re- read a little bit about uh, some of his comments on the the uh, macroeconomic situation within the wind industry involving the OEMs and all of the vendors uh, and what it, the out, output uh, will look like, hopefully, f- through the end of this decade. Uh, and then, of course, uh, everybody's favorite wind farm of the week. We'll be talking about the Seamade Wind Farm in Belgium. So, so stay tuned. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with the vice president of North American Sales for Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and the Bill Nye of Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. We've all seen wind turbines up on ridgelines and in high altitude places, at least in the States, when you consider high altitude in Massachusetts, we're talking about a thousand meters. That's what's considered a mountain in Massachusetts. Uh, But in other places of the world, they're talking about putting wind turbines much higher up. And in China, uh, China Energy Investment Corporation has begun construction on the world's largest wind power project in Nagyu, which is located in a high altitude area. When I say high altitude, 4,500 meters, which in America talk is 14,700 feet. Uh, And this uh, place is in southwest China. Uh, The wind power project is expected to have a capacity of 100 megawatts and provide around 200 million kilowatt hours of clean electricity to the region. And it's, it's supposed to be operational at the end of this year. So Rosemary, 
when you put a wind turbine up where the air is thin, it seems like to me that would be a problem. Is it? Yeah. So obviously, when you go up in altitude, then the air gets thinner. And I just looked it up and at four and a half thousand meters, it's something like 60% of the air density that it is at sea level. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so the power in the wind, it is, you can calculate that using the formula P equals half rho V cubed. Um, and rho in that equation is air density and V is the wind speed. So the um, power in the wind varies linearly with the um, air density. So if you have, um, you know, twice air density, twice the power or 60% the air density, 60% the power. Um, and then because the velocity part of the equation varies with the cube of the, of the yeah, wind speed and velocity, that has a much more powerful effect. So even though it's not good to go up, um, you know, up to thinner air, it's not nearly as significant as the wind speed. So the cubic relationship between power and wind speed means that if you double wind speed, you get eight times as much power. Um, and if you wanted to compensate for the fact that you've only got 60% of the um, air density, then you would need to have wind speeds that are about 1.2 times what they are at uh, sea level wind turbine. Uh, so actually, yeah, 18.6% 18, 18 more to be precise. So you can see it's not that much of a difference. Um, and I'm assuming that this site has, you know, wind speeds that are, you know, are, are good for the area. Um, so they're going to get, you know, value from that. Um, and then there might be some other reasons to put the uh, wind farm there as well. Uh, for example, you might um, find in that site that the wind speeds uh, or the, yeah, the times that winds are high in that area might not correlate with the other wind resources in the, um, the area that that electricity grid serves. So that means um, that adds a whole lot of value to the system if you can get an uncorrelated uh, wind site and add it because it means that you're um, making your electricity less variable and so you'll end up needing less long duration energy storage, which is very expensive compared to just adding more generation in, in good sites. So Rosemary, when we first started talking about this, and I'm looking at these numbers, 4,500 meters, thinking the air density is way less. This is just armchair thinking. I'm, uh, my mind goes, man, this turbine has to be designed completely different than something at sea level. Would it have to have a different kind of gearbox, different kind of blades or something to be able to handle that there? But, I, but when you say it only really is about a, you know, the 18.6%, about a 20% increase in wind speed delta from what would be at at uh, sea level is do this turbine need any kind of changes or is it something that may, might already be off the shelf it might or it might not what did you say it was alan like a hundred megawatt wind farm so it's um you know it's not small but it's not huge they may design some um you know some components separately for this wind farm but you try definitely try not to um yeah, when I was working at LM Wind Power, one of the things that happens quite often is because, you know, you design a blade for a wind turbine for a, a customer and that's designed to withstand a certain set of loads. Um, but they, the turbine manufacturer doesn't know every single site that they are going to want to sell it to. So from time to time, they'll have a new big wind farm that they want to be able to sell a turbine to, but they have to submit new design loads and we would run them and check if the blade could you know, um, operate as, 
as is um, within the, you know, blade certificate would still be valid at this new site. And if not, then if it was, uh, you know, um, tempting enough prospect, this new wind farm, then you could actually make a new version of the, the blade. So you add in a couple of extra layers of, um, of glass or carbon fiber at some critical places. And now this blade is strong enough for the new loads. So yeah, with this design, let's assume that they've got higher wind speeds than normal, but they've got the lower air density. So the forces on the blade would kind of like even out probably. Um, the one thing that um, might not quite work um, is that a wind turbine blade design, it's really specific to a certain tip speed ratio. So the tip speed ratio is the ratio between the wind speed and the tips of the blades. So, um, you know, a wind turbine blade, it's twisted along the length so that the, the aerodynamic profile, the angle of attack that it sees is the same all the way along. Um, and that the air that it sees, it, it varies in its direction because it's got a component that comes from the wind and a component that comes from the rotation. So if you're changing the wind speed, then you also need to change the rotation speed to make sure that those um, aerodynamic angles all stay correct. But I doubt that the wind speed would be so different that you would be uh, operating on, you know, such a different tip speed ratio that you would actually warrant, uh, you know, change in, in the design of the gearbox um, or anything like that. I'd be highly surprised if that was that was worthwhile. So what we've been talking about here, of course, engineering theory, which is has to be the basis of a wind farm before it starts, right? And then once you get past that, we go into the development decisions and how those go forward. The next step of decision-making is operations and maintenance. How are we going to run this thing? So when I look at this wind farm at almost 15,000 feet of elevation, who's going to go up there and maintain this thing, right? I think the highest I've ever been uh in like colorado is about thirteen thousand, maybe thirteen thousand four hundred feet or so and i remember walking around kind of like on the top of this mountain in the summertime being like man it's it's tough it's tough up here now you're gonna go another two thousand feet plus higher than that and you're gonna have to do all the regular maintenance activities you might have rope access people up there you're gonna have the whole construction crew you're pouring concrete all kinds of different things and then for the life of the wind farm the the all the people that have to maintain this thing day to day to day so um I, uh, who do we get to do that? Is it is it uh, the so of course maybe some locals maybe some some guys from Mount Everest from Nepal or something that can that are good good at altitude? What, what how do we do this? Uh, I just looked it up and the highest ski resort in Europe um, is the uh, Zermatt um, ski resort and the highest ski slope at that resort is 3,899 meters. So not so far off. Um, I don't think it's the, you know, kind of height that four, four and a half thousand meters for this wind farm. And then, you know, add a hundred and a little bit for the, <laughs> for the um, wind turbine tower. I, I don't think that that's so extreme that, you know, you're going to be supplying your workers with oxygen, but you would certainly not, you know, fly from your sea level city directly to this wind farm, climb up there, you know, on the ladder and think that that was all going to be straightforward and, and easy. You're going to want to have a little bit of time to acclimatize and you're definitely going to feel the effects of altitude when you're doing physical work at that at that height, that's for sure. I think the technicians are going to want climb assists for sure, or like a three, the three S elevator lift or something in that turbine. They're not going to want to be just climbing that one. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, isn't that what we always want when you've got to climb a wind turbine? <laughs> true, true story, true story. I climbed a few towers 
under 100 meters that only had ladders early in my career, but it, everything over 100 meters is has got a lift in it these days, I think. Not that you can avoid, you know, some clambering around on ladders and, you know, physical work dragging rescue kits and stuff into the the hub or the the blade if you're up there. So it's um it's not easy, but I at least hope that yeah, the poor workers at this wind farm <laughs> not gonna be climbing up and down ladders. Well, over in America, we've had some uh, actually good positive news for a change with AES Corporation. So AES uh, has unveiled a new long-term growth strategy aimed at tripling its renewable capacity by 2027. Now, that's exciting. Uh, the strategy includes adding 25 to 30 gigawatts of solar, wind, and energy storage, as well as exiting coal operations by the end of 2025. So Shutting down coal, bringing in the renewables. Uh, AES also invests will also invest to deliver a ten percent annual rate based growth in its U.S. utilities. Uh, renewable energy is expected to be a key driver of growth for the company over the next four years, and they give some projections on uh, what they think their growth rate is going to be. Looks pretty positive. So AES CEO Andres Glusky said that the company is, quote, uniquely positioned to create value for our shareholders in the once-in-a-lifetime energy transition we are currently living through. So positive outlook from AES. It's very seems very similar to things like what RWE is doing and some others that as an operator, now's the time to go. Is this one of those things where we have to give our disclaimer that says the, the Uptime Wind Energy podcast is not investment advice? Can't, you can't sue us with the SEC or anything like that? It should be obvious when you have three engineers on a podcast that they are not giving you any good advice from finances. No, but it, it, joking aside, it's great to see U.S. companies um, jumping on the transition here and, and shooting for growth, right? So if they're if they're planning it uh, or if, they're, if they have um, – Guidance uh, of increases of six to eight percent every year. Uh, that means they've got a plan behind it, um, and that means they've more than likely got some some capital moving in the background. Uh, so it's good to see that. Yeah, uh, AES, another great uh, company, hitting the growth hard. We need some positive news because I'm telling you, Joel, when you go online and, and look for wind energy news and just see what's happening on a day to day basis, which is what I do. Boy, it seems like. 70, 80% of it is pretty negative. And only in that, you know, 20%, there's some some highlights, and which is good. Well, I'm, our next story is about Nordex. And of course, OEMs have been having trouble for a while. Nordex released its first quarter numbers. Not so hot uh, for Nordex. The first quarter results indicate a long way to go for Nordex as operating margin was a negative 9.4%. Uh, and sales for the first quarter rose by over 30% to 1.2 billion euros, but Nordex recorded a loss of nearly 215 million euros, a 40% increase compared to the same period last year. Uh, they're having, obviously, supply chain issues. It sounds like uh, some of the jobs that they bid on are unprofitable, but they have to wrap them up and finish them because they're contractually obligated to do that. Uh, but they, I think Nordex is thinking like, Vestas and Siemens and GE that at the end of this year, things are going to turn around a little bit. And, and that's what their, their CEO, the CEO, Jose Luis Blanco, expects stronger performance later this year. And my guess is that's in part because of the IRA bill. And uh, I think the market is starting to show that. And yeah, maybe it's a question for Phil next time we talk to him. Um, 
about what Nordic's market share is in the U.S. Because I'm curious of that, right? I, um, you know, basically, basically all the turbines installed last year were either Nordex, Vestas, Siemens, Gamesa, or GE. Right? You had the four, um, and I'd like to understand where Nordex is in that in the in the market as far as their market share, um, as pushed by the IRA, because um, I think that could change some of these numbers. Since you're talking about Phil, uh, can I take the opportunity to plug that he's going to be coming on an Engineering with Rosie live stream? It'll probably be shortly after this um, this one, this podcast is released. So um, oh, I can't remember the day of the week, but I think it's the Tuesday after this podcast will be released. So you can check that out. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, where we're at with the energy transition, um, which is actually a topic that came up after talking to you guys, uh, Alan and Joel. Uh, I think I mentioned in a podcast that, you know, we need to get 90% um, of the emissions out of the electricity sector by 2030. And you guys are like, no, no way. We could never do that. That's not happening. So I uh, I mentioned at the time I didn't want to have that discussion without the facts to hand. Um, and so, yeah, that, this is me gathering gathering facts because Phil uh, at Intel Store, you know, they have gathered data on the um, amount of wind, solar, batteries, even transmission, a whole bunch of different categories of um, infrastructure projects. And so, yeah, he, he knows how fast they've been rolling out and they've got forecasts for the future. So we're going to talk about that and some of the obstacles that might prevent us from getting to that target in 2030. The numbers will tell the story. That's what we're looking forward to. Phil knows. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PESWind at PESWind.com. GE and NRAW are, are working on, Rosemary, something called low-level jet streams. And you say to yourself, what's a low-level jet stream? I had the same question. <laughs> so low-level jet streams occur on the Atlantic coast of the United States where uh, we're going to be putting a lot of wind turbines out in the water. Well, evidently, uh, based on the topology and the types of weather systems that happen along the East Coast, you're getting these close to the ground uh, blasts of air. It's like similar to like when you cross – if you ever cross a jet stream – when you're flying, you're like you're at thirty thousand feet, and the airplane gets rocked, and you're like, "Whoa, what was that?" Well, you probably crossed a jet stream, right? Well, those exist at low levels also, and which is where GE and Enrol have been focused on. So uh, they're trying to understand what these uh, low-level jets streams mean, and if you can imagine, they're going to create a bunch of wakes, and which means more losses and more loads on the wind turbine. So GE and Enrol have been using basically simulations and supercomputers to look at the vulnerabilities there on these low-level jet streams. And from, and this is still early from what I can tell, we don't know a lot about what the winds are going to be like offshore in, in the United States yet. And yet we're building turbines to handle these environments. It, it does seem a little odd. And my guess on some of these, because there's so much development, Joel, Joel knows, on the East Coast, there's a lot of development along the shoreline. My guess is that that development is changing the way the airflow comes off the shoreline onto the water. Absolutely. So just one little concept there before we get, keep running on it. But 
Chicago is called the Windy City, right? The reason Chicago is called the Windy City is because it's surrounded by cornfields behind it, which hold a certain amount of heat and moisture. And then it has Lake Michigan in front of it. So you end up with this hot moisture here and Lake Michigan here. And then you have Chicago sitting in the middle. And Chicago holds way more heat because it's a big concrete jungle. So you have a heat mass and then you have the cold mass of the lake. And that creates, it's almost like unnatural independent weather patterns around the city of Chicago. The same thing happens on the East Coast, right? You have that mass of water right there. And then you have the mountains of like, say the Appalachian kind of chain there. And then all the cities that are along the, the coast. So immediately off the coast, you have different land masses of concrete and steel and asphalt and roofs of houses and stuff that create that trap heat during the day and, and keep uh, the heat longer. And then you have moisture packed up against those mountains and then the different temperature from the ocean. So it's going to the, the, the man-made objects along that coast also do mess with the weather patterns. Well, I think it was Arc Vera that had a discussion, a webinar even, uh, about uh, wake vortices and some of the unique things off the East Coast where there's these thermal layers that exist, right? And so uh, wakes tend to get trapped in these thermal layers. So they tend to travel much further. In first envision and numbers, the number stick in my head it was like a hundred miles. That seems crazy. But now, when you start talking about these low-level jets coming off the shoreline, I wonder if they're also getting caught in some of these thermals. So now they're able to travel pretty far out. And Joel, I think you're right. So, man, and it's it's very similar to what we see on some of the wind sites and onshore wind sites where the predicted winds are X, and when they get the site developed. They're X minus two. <laughs> no one knows why, right? It's a, that's a big mystery. It's a very expensive mystery that we really need to get figured out because of the amount of money that's going offshore in the United States, right? Why, why don't we have the same problem on in Europe? It's because it, all the winds are coming off the water and then hitting landmass. We're just the opposite of that in the United States where it's coming off the landmass into the turbines. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the weather in the North Sea just because of the nature of the beast up there, right? The way the weather patterns work, plus the um, uh, historic climatology of the area. It's it's nasty up there, especially in the wintertime, right? Like if you've ever seen videos of it, like it's it's brutal. And it's just like, it's a, you can't, you can't, it's not apples to apples. It's apples and oranges, right? It's completely different. It's a, Take the Pacific coast, right? The Pacific coast in California has much more steady winds that come across and around uh, the Pacific Rim because it's coming off the water onto land versus, like you said, the weather patterns moving west to east. And then you also have that shear coming up from the south, from the warmer waters in the Caribbean along the east coast. And then vice versa, you have sometimes a shear coming down around around Newfoundland through Greenland and, and meeting. So um, the, the, the environmental conditions are just completely different on the east coast of the U.S. The concern I have about all this is are we going to start having turbines fail because of the unknowns in the wind? You know, when they put wind turbines up on ridgelines, one of the concerns there is you kind of get these gusty winds and the winds are not really hitting the blades just right. And, and you can do some damage to the gearboxes and the blades. Are we going to, and that's one level. I mean, if you do that to a, a one, two megawatt machine, not such a big deal, not fun. But if you do it to a 15 or 20 megawatt machine, that's 50 miles offshore. That's a whole different animal. Yeah. I think that um, because the, uh, the offshore wind play has been, talked about and researched and, and moved along for a long time, right? We didn't just start this thing a year ago. 
it's been five, six, seven, eight years that we've been talking about putting offshore wind in the U.S. There's companies like like uh, TGS. TGS was a oil and gas data company and has made the switch into, or they still do that, of course, but they have switched into doing some renewables. One of the things that they're doing is deploying a lot of med-ocean equipment. Med-ocean equipment can measure measure currents in the water, temperature, salinity, pressure, all those good things. But there's also floating LIDAR units, right? So they're collecting a lot of data on spec out at these sites where they would be. Um, you get a permit to put a little buoy out there or a big buoy. Sometimes they're about the size of a vehicle, like a car or so. Um, and they have LIDAR measurements of the wind resource. So they've been tracking this wind resource for, for quite a few years now to ensure that when they spend four points, when someone spends $4.7 billion in the New York bite auction, they're not buying a lemon basically, you know? Hey, Joel, does LIDAR affect whales? No. No. Okay. I, th- I thought we ought to just say that now because I swear to you, if I read another whale article about some wind development that is not even happening at the moment, I'm going to just lose it. For our listeners, L- LIDAR is um, light detection and ranging. So it's a it's a basically a, a way of sending light photons out and measuring the returns on them for getting distances. Uh, so if you point and there's a way to point there's a way to triangulate beams and point them into the clear blue sky and measure wind resource. Yeah, it, it's 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 like magic. Uh, <laughs> but boy, if you've been following New Jersey news, political news, there is just so much about whales and dolphins and anytime a dolphin or any sort of mammal washes up on the beach in new jersey it is a political firestorm at the moment and nobody knows anything both sides are just talking out of the backside it's just somebody's got to walk into that conversation and tell them to stop and figure it out like if a whale is if a whale has died there and it's got propeller marks on his back can we just assume that it wasn't a wind turbine can we do that I mean, that this, we don't have to do an autopsy on a whale that's been hit by a boat, I wouldn't think. But man, it, it's insane right now. Speaking of insane, let's move on to Australia. <laughs> She's right here, man. She's right here. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> In a surprising turn of events, a proposed big battery with eight hours of storage has emerged as a winner in the New South Wales state government first long-duration storage tender. The 50-megawatt battery will be built by Lymondale, uh, sorry, at Lymondale by uh, German energy giant RWE next to an existing solar farm also owned by RWE. So this is really important because in Australia, there's a lot of pumped hydro projects for energy storage. And there were several that bid on this project didn't make it that the battery is, was less expensive. It had to be less expensive. There's just so little to do there. It's just the cost of the batteries and putting it on the site. Um, that now all these pump hydro prog- programs are wondering, like, what does the future look like if we can just put batteries everywhere? Maybe the pump hydro isn't as necessary. And maybe the shift, the, everything's swinging over to batteries. Is, is that what you're hearing down in Australia, Rosemary? It's definitely big news for Australia. And I think it's globally significant as well. In Australia, nearly all of our grid scale batteries are between one and two hours duration, and they're mostly not used to um, like time shift renewable energy um, or energy arbitrage, you know, where you uh, charge using the really cheap electricity supplied by all of the solar power in the middle of the day and then supply it um, in the evening when there's no solar in the grid, but um, when people are using a lot of electricity. 
So we're using it very little for that now. Um, and that's true most mostly around the world. I know in the US there is there are longer battery durations um, than elsewhere. And I think I should have looked it up before this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there has been an eight-hour battery or two that's won auctions, similar kinds of auctions in California. Um, so I don't think this is a world first, but it's, you know, amongst the world first. I doubt that there's any eight hour batteries actually installed yet, probably just announced. Um, so it's a big deal for, from that perspective. And it is interesting. It's compared to pumped hydro and in Australia, we've got a lot of talk about pumped hydro projects more so than we've got actual ones. The only one that's actually under construction, um, oh, there's a couple of small ones, but the only major one that's actually under construction is Snowy Hydro 2.0 and that is plagued by delays. Um, at the moment, one of their tunnel boring machines is stuck and has been for some some time. I, I think I heard that it only made it 50 or 80 metres or something before it, it stuck itself and has been proving hard to get out again. Apparently, it's not actually that uncommon that these machines get stuck. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, things aren't progressing and the time keeps blowing out and the cost keeps blowing out. Um, and I think that that's one of the the key points about um, hydro projects in general. Have you guys read, um, there's this Danish guy, um, I think it's Bent uh, Flubia, uh, who's done a lot of research on mega projects and it's been in the um, in the media a lot recently. I think he must have released a new article or something recently, but I've just got his, uh, his book on mega projects on Kindle and he has this nice table in there about where he sorts all of a different kind of infrastructure mega projects um, by category and then looks at the cost overrun. Um, yeah, and so the number one like worst category of mega projects that have the worst cost overrun is nuclear storage which kind of makes sense mean cost overrun of 238% um second second is olympic games at 150% mean overrun and 76% of projects have more than 50% overrun um, and I think that one's kind of obvious too, because I think people purposely underbid, um, <laughs> the cost for Olympics because otherwise you'd never get it. But, um, yeah, so hydroelectric dams are, uh, number four, three is nuclear power, 120% overrun hydroelectric dams, 75% mean cost overrun. Um, and then you get all the way down to the end and, um, yeah, wind power, 13%, energy transmission, 8%, solar power, 1%. Um, battery projects isn't on there, but you can imagine that it's got a lot more in common with, you know, a solar farm than it does have in common with a, a hydroelectric dam. Um, you know, it's a sort of project where you've done it once, you solve most of the problems that you're going to encounter in the next project, whereas a, a dam or a, you know, a, a tunnel or anything like that, you're going to have new problems arise that you can't foresee ahead of time. Um, so I think that that's probably one thing in favor of battery projects. It probably has to do with capital costs too, right? Like if you're, if it's capital intensive, it's probably more accurate rather than like a pumped hydro dam, you have a lot of fuel costs, a lot of trucking, mining, a lot of dozer work and a lot of that kind of stuff that can be, can overrun quickly. Yeah. I mean, they're both pretty capital intensive, I think, but um, hydro more so and you need a lot longer project duration to make those projects stack up. Um, 
And one other researcher that uh, I find his work interesting, it's Oliver Schmidt and his team. They do a lot of work um, comparing different energy storage technologies and they've got forecasts for the future. And so this paper I'm looking at, I was using it a few years ago um, and so it was published in 2019. It's called Projecting the Future Levelized Cost of Electricity Storage Technologies. But he's got all these really cool charts for projections for different timeframes about um, how which energy technology is going to be the cheapest for certain use cases. So on one axis, he's got the um, duration of energy storage. And then uh, um, so that's on the y axis. And on the x axis, he has frequency discharges per year. There's, um, you know, there's different, uh, different economics if you're using your battery for cycling at once per day compared to, you know, once every week, for, for example. And if you look at the different charts over time, we see that um, pumped hydro is the cheapest for, uh, you know, for longer energy storage durations and uh, lithium ion batteries for shorter energy storage durations. But the, the crossover point where it changes which technology is cheapest um, between those two, it gets longer and longer um, the further you go. So the first graph starts at 2015 and it's basically always pumped hydro. Um, then by 2020, you see at one hour, um, it's cheaper for a lithium ion battery and beyond that, uh, it's pumped hydro. And then in this chart that was yeah, published 2019, so they did the research a bit before that, 2025 had the threshold at about four hours. Um, and it wasn't until 2030 or a bit after that eight hours was cheaper for lithium ion batteries than for, um, yeah, to do it with pumped hydro. So based on this one single data point, you can see that we're moving faster than expected. Lithium ion is taking, is, you know, eating, <laughs> eating pumped hydro's cake faster than we expected. Um, and I guess it's all it to do with how do you expect the, you know, the cost of the technology to come down and also the cost of materials and lithium prices spiked um, a year or two ago, but now they're down again um, and, and yeah, still dropping. So that would have a lot to do with it as well. But yeah, I think it's really interesting to, you know, go back to these previous projections and see how, how are we tracking and seems like lithium iron is um, yeah set to take over longer and longer storage durations a bit faster than we thought, which also, makes my mind immediately go to all of these crazy new energy storage technologies that we see emerging like thermal energy storage and gravity and I don't know, compressed air, everything. It's all geared around that 10 hour ish, um, energy storage duration and, um, you know, maybe a bit more, but it seems to me that, you know, they're at risk of lithium ion batteries, just, you know, totally sealing that off before they, you know, ever get a chance to um, commercialize those technologies. Um, so my advice to energy storage um, startups would be try and, you know, aim aim longer, try and future proof a bit. You know, maybe you're going to want to be more in the twenty hour um, duration. But I mean, that's tough because the economics of that long energy storage are, are pretty pretty hard to see how that happens without government you know, intervention to pay for that security and who knows what that's going to look like until it get there. But anyway, super interesting to, yeah, it's kind of like watching a, I don't know, a football game or something. Who's going to win? <laughs> Do you think 10 hours makes sense? Like from a cultural standpoint, right? Like 10 hours gets us through a section of the day. 
right? 10 hours gets us through the workday or it gets us through a night or it gets us, or, or is it purely economics driven? The reality is it should be purely economics driven. I, I think that the, the comparisons that you made, that's the sort of thing that, you know, people, people like to think of it in terms like that. Is it correlation or is it actually real? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did it myself at the start saying, oh, you know, you know, a four hour battery can um, shift uh, solar power from the middle of the day to the evening. But in reality, it doesn't work like that. And you've got batteries doing, um, you know, all sorts of, they, they do all sorts of crazy, crazy things with their operations. Actually, I saw a presentation last week or the week before at the Smart Energy Conference I was at by um, uh, someone from Energy Synapse. And they had done some really good analysis on exactly how all of the big batteries, the grid scale batteries in Australia, how they're using um, their their batteries. And that, that's how I got that figure of, you know, most Australian batteries are between one and two hours. It was their, their research and analysis. And yeah, so I'm sure you can find that presentation if you search for it on their website. Um, that's really, yeah, really interesting stuff. It's not like a two hour battery. It's not like every day you charge it and then discharge it two hours over the next two hours. It, you know, you charge, hold and, uh, you know, sell, sell a little bit now and then charge again to a little bit later and you're trying to forecast the future um so yeah the battery operating system is probably like the the most important technology in in all of this to be able to use them smart given that we don't know exactly what the you know the future is going to look like so you're never 100 percent sure if now's the right time to charge or discharge or hold who has the best battery charge technology at the moment yeah, I don't know. I'm sure um, every, everyone would tell you that that they did. I know Neowen, who did the first um, grid scale battery in Australia, would say that that's their, you know, their core IP is the um, the way that they know how to manage it. But yeah, like, I'm sure all the other the major players think they do too. I saw um, what's it, Energy Vault? You know that crazy gravity energy storage system there that's their ip that they're selling to outside of in china they announced that they're doing an actual gravity installation but all the rest of the energy storage projects that i've seen them announce in the last year have all been just straight batteries and they're like yeah we know how to operate batteries because of our history in this space uh, which is i don't know a bit of a stretch to me because they haven't actually installed any of that gravity systems and used them for a long time so where did they get that expertise but the company is doing the most that's actually producing batteries in a sense and monitoring batteries all the time and producing chargers. So they know how people are reacting and what, how they're using them for is Tesla. That company has gathered so much information about battery usage and how to charge and discharge a battery to maximize its lifetime. You've seen changes more recently in the way they're dealing with battery charging and discharging Man, it, it's hard to think that Tesla doesn't lead that parade at the moment. But you don't see them winning ev- everything. So give them time. They won a big one in California. A couple of years ago, they did that one in Australia. The Australian one, the first one, the um, Hornsdale big battery. It's a Tesla battery, but it was Neo and that um, that did the project, and it's their um, battery management system or their trading trading platform on that. I'm, I'm like 99% sure that's true, but I don't think that's the case moving forward. Yeah. Anytime you give engineers time to study how it, uh, a piece of equipment is operating and to make adjustments on the fly, that's the best way to get to the you know the peak of of operation. Is 
letting your engineers just work with it for a while. And you know that Tesla engineers have been working on these batteries for five, six, seven years pretty hard. It just feels like they would have a lead in that space. I'm surprised other companies are trying to enter that space because with all the AI and all the other crazy things that Tesla is doing, it you're competing against a, a behemoth. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that other companies are trying to enter. Other companies have have entered. And there's, um, what's the Siemens one called? Fluence? Um, I mean, they have got, you know, a Siemens are no strangers to, you know, data data collection and analysis and doing smart things with it. So, um, yeah, that kind of, you know, makes sense as well. Uh, and then, yeah, like I mentioned now and again, but uh, that's kind of their, their core thing as well, specifically with renewable energy that, you know, they manage, um, they operate their assets, I'm pretty sure, all their wind and, and solar and batteries. So they they know a lot as well. Um, and then there'd be, you know, at least half a dozen other players beyond that um, that are, you know, bigger, bigger or smaller, but doing smart things. It was still early days for this. And I think that the the market is totally evolving as well because, you know, it's one thing to have the first battery in the system, the first huge battery. Um, you know, in Australia in springtime, you see wild fluctuations in electricity prices. They're, you know, consistently negative in the middle of the day for, you know, quite, quite a lot of days in spring. Um, they can go down to negative $1,000 per megawatt hour and they can go up to over $15,000 positive and you can get swings, you, you know, nearly that whole range within a day. So, you know, the first people to put batteries in see this like, immense arbitrage opportunity to, you know, um, get paid to charge and then get paid even more to discharge. But every person that installs a battery is making that, you know, that the shortfall just a little bit less. And so eventually, you know, in an efficient market, you'll get to a, a very, you know, smooth kind of um, system. So it's really hard, even when you see, you know, dollar signs, when you look at these duck curves um, and you're, you know, thinking about um, buying a battery, it's super hard to predict the future. You know, you can say, okay, if we had a battery now, we'd be killing it. Um, and I know it's also true for for Europe. Um, battery projects that got installed before, you know, the big Russian gas crisis and everything else, they really did crush their business cases over the last year. Um, but you install one now and then, you know, in six months or a year, you uh, have actually got it up and running and you're making money, how many other people did that? What does the duck curve look like now? You know, um, so it's it's really hard in the absence of some sort of government support um, or utility scale support. It, it's pretty hard to actually have the confidence to invest like that. And that's why you, you see these big batteries that don't come from people that are just like, oh, I'm going to make a ton of money. Um, no one told me to do this. I just decided to. It, it's always in response to, um, you know, a, a government saying we want, you know, this amount of energy storage. And yeah, in the case of Australia, it's in response to some of the big coal power plants closing down. And we know that we're going to have to replace that and that you can't just, you know, wait until the <laughs> plant goes offline and everyone's lights go out, that's not the right time to start thinking about long duration energy storage. Um, you need to think about it a, a year or two ahead at a minimum. It sounds like it's really not that not that bankable of a solution, right? Like if, if it's if the business case is dependent on outside factors, basically no matter what, um, there's not like a whole lot of people that are going to take that risk on. 
I mean, there's a whole categories of finance that are, you know, um, that, that, that deal with these kinds of uncertainties. It's certainly not the only kind of, um, you know, large capital intensive project where you can't predict 100% what's going to happen in the future. But it's definitely not as easy as, I don't know, building a wind farm where all of your output is tied up in power purchase agreements. Um, you know, that's like rock solid. The wind is not going to change over, a, you know, the life of the wind farm. It's the average wind speed will be very close to what you thought it should be if you, you know, did your site assessment properly. Um, but you can't say the same for battery unless you've got you know, um, you can have a power purchase agreement from battery as well. Um, and then you can, yeah, I guess mitigate most of that. Get the latest on wind industry news, business and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. Well, there was a recent uh, news article uh, in which Wood McKenzie contributed to, and it had to do mostly with the state of the OEM industry, uh, wind industry, and and where it is today, where it's likely to go in the future. And we all know that supply chain and inflation and interest rates and all the problems that have existed there for the last year or two or three. Uh, but there, I think people who are, are industry analysts are saying they're maybe, maybe turning the corner. Uh, and Aaron Barr, who is an industry analyst uh, at Wood McKenzie, had a couple of good quotes. And let me let me read them so we just can discuss them. Quote, the, the wind energy market is stuck in this very strange paradox right now. We have the best long-term climate policy certainly ever across the largest markets. But we are struggling through a period where the whole, whole industry, particularly the supply chain, has been hit by issues that have culminated in destroying profit margins and running many of the top OEMs and their component vendors into negative, negative profitability territory. That means everybody's stuck. Here's a second quote. Uh, it, it just has to get over the speed bump, most of which is driven by supply chain issues. Uh, quote, if all the players involved can make it through the end of this year, 2023, we think the future is bright for the industry. So Wood McKenzie, who is on top of all the moving parts of the of the wind industry, is saying this year is not going to be so great. And I think that's what all the OEMs are saying also. But they're they're Wood McKenzie's looking at 2024, 2025 and saying that this should be a pretty dramatic turnaround uh, because all the factors are in place to make it positive in 2024, 25. Joel, are you seeing some of the same things as uh, Aaron Barr is? Yeah, you know, when the IRA bill came out last year, everybody was super excited. Of course, it's it's a it's a fantastic thing for the renewable energy transition here in the states. Um, and then, like this December and stuff, I remember we were talking with some people. It's like, you know, that just the IRA bill was signed. Why why are they still reporting negative, you know, profitability and 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 a lot of red on their balance sheets? It's like, well, these things take time to move, right? The the macro economy doesn't move like a bullet. The macro economy takes a little bit longer to to respond to market conditions and the market conditions that people want it, right? But now we've got the IRA bill in place. There's the ITC credits where you get 30% um, on manufacturing and some other things. So it'll take a little bit of time to get it going. But like uh, Aaron Barr is saying here over at Wood McKenzie, who does, does a great job with research as always, uh, they're saying the wheels are starting to turn. 
right? It, it, we're still kind of in the mud a little bit and we'll be in the mud a little bit, but we'll come out of it hopefully uh, Q1, 24, and then through the end of this decade, it looks like it's going to be a, a, a profitable turnaround for all of these OEMs. And, and when the OEMs are profiting um, from the past, it looks good for aftermarket suppliers, their vendors, the whole industry. So, so as we are, you know, we're constantly reporting on the news that's coming out. We don't make it. We just report on it. And like this week, Nordex's uh, report wasn't too good. Um, we hope that uh, end of this year, we'll start to look a little bit sunnier. And then next year and through the end of the decade, we'll be in the positive. My only comment about all this is that the wild card, at least in the United States, is the Fed. And if they continue to keep pumping up interest rates, that's a problem for the wind industry and they need to pause for a little bit, maybe bring it back down a quarter percentage point would be nice. Uh, but they're really trying to tamp down inflation and it just makes everything more expensive. Our wind farm of the week is Seamade Wind Farm, which is about 45 kilometers off the coast of Austin, Belgium. Nice place to visit. Seamade uh, uh, is really two projects: uh, the Mermaid Project and the Sea Star Project, and they obviously can join the names. <laughs> the Mermaid Project was 235 megawatts, and the Sea Star Project was 252 megawatts. They uh, that whole farm, the Seamade farm, is has 58 uh, Siemens Gamesa 8.0167 turbines, producing 487 megawatts total. the The site became operational in about 2020. It's cutting. 500,000 tons of CO2 emissions, and it has several stakeholders in it, Enico, Wind Belgium, Engie, and Odery, uh, but Enico uh, purchases the power for the Belgian customers. So it's a really nice site. If you go online, uh, it's pretty there. <laughs> it's hard to describe. Like, these wind turbines are in a nice place. It's Belgium's a nice place, so uh, it's a pretty wind farm, and it is our wind farm of the week, Seamade Wind Farm in Belgium. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Cool.